On this episode of The Art Dealer Show, you will hear Tony Perniconi say, Wear the robe of responsibility that says, hey, I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to be a, a professional art dealer is a noble profession. Somebody who's selling art is just somebody who's selling art. And there is a difference. about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have art dealer, certified art appraiser, and art auctioneer, Tony Perniconi. Tony and I will be discussing the different aspects of art auctions that go beyond the headlines of Sotheby's and Christie's, the history of limited edition art prints that goes beyond what, in some cases, I even knew about, and uh, the ABCs of the art sale, and and the great life story of another art business vet. But before we get into that, come and join me at the corner booth, uh, the old art dealer bar, because I'm trying to figure something out, and, and maybe you can help me out with this. We may be just 10 episodes in, and yeah, 10. We got a little bit to celebrate around here, but... Uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but in the world of podcasting, and, and there's no reason, of course, why you should, but in the world of podcasting, 50% of podcasts do not make it past episode number seven. Now, I did want to celebrate that. I, 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 I had it in my head that number seven would make a little bit of noise, that we had crossed that magic threshold, uh, what they consider in the world of podcasting as a the hump. Uh, but I'm also a little bit superstitious. And I had this feeling that the ironic gods would come in and make sure that if I made any noise about it and said something, uh, that number seven would be the last episode, or even more pathetically somehow, number eight would be. Anyway, despite the modest number of ten up on iTunes, I've recorded conversations for the show with a lot more than that. As a matter of fact, we're at about 25 people at this point. And here's something crazy. Something that I did not expect at all. Amongst all these gallery owners, art brokers, art dealers, art-selling pros of all shapes and sizes and flavors, none, I repeat, none, have on their own wanted to talk about selling art. Now, don't get me wrong. They've all wanted to talk about the business of selling art. That's their first, biggest, and, and last interest. You've heard it on the podcast episodes. We'll talk about where the collectors are coming from, what people want these days, pricing, the kind of art that sells versus the kind of art that won't. Every little thing that has to do with getting sales in their gallery or whatever other kind of art business they have. But none really want to talk about the actual art, craft, performance, whatever it is that is done on the gallery floor and, and maybe more to the point in the viewing room. Even in this episode's conversation with Tony, I bring up the basic fundamentals of an art sale. And uh, for a good reason. He, he literally wrote the manual for the first gallery that I worked at about the fundamentals of an art sale. And sure, we talked about the structure some, and, and it's a good talk. As a matter of fact, it's a talk that I'm sure you'll be happy that you listen to. But still, even wading waist-deep into this topic... We did not talk about the making of the soup. Some of the others I've talked to have, 
have shared their thoughts and, uh, and feelings about the type of approach that, that they believe in or what makes for a good presentation, viewing room, no viewing room, etc. But that's more like listing the ingredients and, and measurements versus how something is actually cooked. At the heart of what we do is the sale. And the sale is a process of its very own. It's quite frankly its own thing, separate and removed from all other aspects of the art business. But yet, it's at the center of it all. You can have the best art in the best-looking gallery, on the best block, and even in the best economy. And it does not mean anything, anything at all, unless someone, a person, can connect with another person to help them connect with a piece of artwork. So, why is this something that does not come up on its own come up when two art selling professionals are talking about selling art is it such a bit of intuitive alchemy that it can't be put into words is it is it because people in our business don't really know what they're doing or maybe maybe we consider it a given that it's a simple thing and everyone basically knows how to do it so why bother talking about it and and I hope you're laughing at this point I'm not sure. And it's not just here on the Arcula Show. I visit galleries almost every week, all over the world. And it's the same thing most everywhere I go. When I was learning how to sell art on a gallery floor, I must have watched four, five, six hundred presentations by the other seasoned art dealers that I was working around. And I don't think it was until I saw that many that I could really have known what was up from what was down. Really had a sense of what a presentation was. I had to watch it in the hands of other masters. And even after that, I would say I probably gave a good thousand presentations from the front of the gallery at the door all the way to the back into the viewing room before I legitimately could say I had chops. And before I would go on to to learn any of the other aspects of this here racket of ours, I knew I had to become a student of this, this this skill, craft, art, art of art sales. Not art business, art sales. But, uh, but look, of course, what am I doing right now? Right here, right now myself, I'm... I'm talking around the edges of this. I'm doing the exact same thing as everybody else is. And I guess that's because I'm talking to people like you, other outselling pros, that maybe if I started talking about the actual details, the details of this craft, it would turn into a primer, an outright lecture, the kind I used to give the art dealers who used to work in my own galleries. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'd be overstepping somehow. But for now, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with a question rather than a point. How is it, how is it that us, us the people in this business, love to talk about every little aspect of what we do? Love to talk about the artists and advertising and promotions and shows and and locations and the rents that we pay. All the little things 
that we love to discuss about is this a good time or bad time for our business? And, and, and what if it could be better or it could be bigger or if we're on the upswing or the downswing? All the little things, all the big things too. But yet rarely do we actually speak about what we do. And I hope, I hope in the case of all of us, that's selling art. I'm very excited to announce we have a new sponsor here at the Art Dealer Show, Redwood Media Group. Now, you may be asking, who's Redwood Media Group? And and that might be because you just don't know them by that name. So let me run a few other names by you. Art San Diego, Art Santa Fe, or how about Art Expo New York? <laughs> you know who I'm talking about now. And as we're just about to drop this episode of the Art Dealers Show, they're opening their doors at Art Miami with two other shows, Spectrum Miami and their newest, Red Dot. I've got to tell you, the more and more I talk to other people in this business, the more I'm learning that the fairs, the art shows, that's where the action is happening. And no one knows more about that aspect of our business than the folks over at RMG. For decades, they've been putting fairs on for artists, galleries, and publishers. You should take a look over at redwoodmg.com and see what shows they have coming up next. Last week, while doing my day job, I called on a gallery in Greenwich, Connecticut, C. Parker Gallery. I spoke to the owner, Tiffany, and I said, hey, by any chance, do you know about the art dealer show? And she said, yes. Yes, of course. That's a show I've seen the ads for in Art World News. My ad preceded me. My ad in Art World News traveled to a gallery long before I would call on them. My ad reached out to thousands of Tiffany's in the art business. It does this every single month. Heck, while I'm in Hawaii next week, on business, by the way, my ad will be hard at work letting people know about this here podcast. So I'll get straight to the point. If you have something you'd like everyone in the business to know about, be in front of where their eyes are directed every single month. Art World News. I've got a very simple philosophy that applies to just about all things. When my car breaks, I take it to a mechanic who's fixed thousands of cars like mine. When I'm sick, go to the top doc I can find who specializes in whatever I have going on. And when it comes to getting the word out for something in the art business I've been sweating over, you bet I go to the top pro I can find out there. I go to Relevant Communications. You should check them out over at relevantcommunications.net. Their owner, Allison Zucker Perlman, and her team of art biz publicist pros, I love me in alliteration, have worked their magic with the leading galleries, artists, and publishers in the art business. Look, don't go showing Eddie the mechanic that weird-looking thing on your inner thigh, and don't be taking your Tesla suspension over to your Dr. Martin. No, don't do that. But if you have something going on in the art business, you have something you need to make a little bit of noise out there about, you got an opening, you have an artist you want to launch, you got a brand new published edition that you want to let the gallery galleries know about, then do yourself a favor and call up Allison Sucker Perlman over at Relevant Communications. Check them out over at relevantcommunications.net. 
Art dealers at their heart are salespeople. They're also storytellers. And being that they're storytellers and that they're salespeople, they can't help but come with a lot of affectation. But that's not my guest today. My guest today, art dealer Tony Pernaconi, he's a meat and potatoes kind of art dealer. And that's the kind of art dealer that I also love and understand. And I don't mean meat and potatoes in the pejorative. I mean, he's the kind of art dealer who takes what he does so seriously, he genuinely really knows the facts behind it. He knows the history of the art that he represents, not just the specific pieces or the specific artists, but the entire context of where the art is coming from and how it's received in the art world and even within art history. And I guess that's why he's not only a great art dealer, but he was also a wonderful gallery director. And not just a gallery director, but also a certified appraiser and a formally educated art auctioneer. And those are the two things that he does most these days. And with that degree of dimensionality that we don't get from the normal art dealer comes a perspective that we also don't get from most art dealers out there. It's a little bit more rounded. It has a greater context to it. And from that, you get a great conversation. And it was a fantastic one. And I hope you enjoy it. Jazzy, smoky voice, so don't worry about a thing. <laughs> when did you leave New York? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I never, you never leave New York. <laughs> but I left in uh, 1980. It was when I moved out here. So you went literally straight from New York to being an art dealer in San Francisco? No, no, no. Well, I, I, I mean, I got into the art business here, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, had, I was in the performing arts. I mean, my degree was in... Uh, BFA in Performing Arts, Boston University. I went to NYU to Boston for seven years. That's where I met my wife. Uh, we didn't get married then, but uh, she was from out here. When we split up, I went back to New York, and somehow the hook was in the, the mouth. And, so did you think you were going to be an actor? No, no. I, I, well, I was acting. I, 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 I was actually pretty successful, too. I mean, I'd done some uh, Broadway touring company. I did Jesus Christ Superstar and I was nominated for an Obie Award. Oh yeah, no, that's where I started. But I, acting, I mean, it, it, acting was kind of the thing that came easy and I guess I didn't really give it the discipline it needed. And uh, so I started writing and I was doing, I wrote a bunch of comedy stuff and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of us got uh, work out here in LA writing for television. Uh, friends of mine wrote for Barney Miller and Seinfeld <laughs> and Cheers and yeah. all that stuff. Mark and Mindy. I just didn't want to live in L.A. My wife didn't want to live in L.A. So I came out here. So it was time to just get some other kind of job. But I, I'd already been involved with, you know, because I grew up in Manhattan. I grew up in, not far from Greenwich Village, hung out in the village. So when I was even in acting and in the theater, I was hanging around with painters and artists. And I was also in a rock and roll band and I, we'd performed for the Warhol Factory. So I had connections with, with that whole group. So I'm trying to place it kind of time-wise because yeah. the village becomes a very different thing from the oh, 60s no, no. to the 70s and to the 80s, very, obviously. Very different. Yeah. I, mean, and a... I, was, I literally grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So when I what was 15, talking... is 1966. Okay. So I'm in a completely different era. Right. I mean, I got here, out here so in 1980. Folky Village. I'd already spent 10, 12 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, Folky Village. When I was 18, I played in... Uh, the Cafe Wa and the Cafe <laughs> Bazaar. You know, I taught myself how to play the guitar. And so you were singing? singing. And, oh, yeah, I was singing. Yeah. and you know, But mostly I was acting uh, as far as for school, you know, and in right. theater. And uh, that's what I wanted to be at the time. 
So then you come out here, go through the LA thing. Well, I moved out here to San Francisco, but I would yeah. commu- I would commute to LA. You know, basically though, I had a you know a daughter who was then five. Okay, so you know, I had to find a, a real job. Did you just define being an art dealer <laughs> as a real as job? A real job? No, yeah. at the time I didn't think right. I was going to be an art dealer. I just thought oh, I would okay. find a real job. Oh, and that's just kind of what came up. And I answered an ad for to work in a gallery. I said, "Well, if I'm going to work anywhere, you know, at that point the big thing was going to selling computer." you know, uh, software or that sort of thing, somewhere in the computer industry. Had I done that, I would have retired 20 years ago. <laughs> All right, so you saw an ad to be an art dealer. So was it with anybody we'd know? Yeah, with, uh, well, then it was Bulls Hopkins. Oh, so you started with Bulls and then went back to Bulls. I, I started with Bulls okay. on the floor. So I got thrown right in right away with Picasso and Chagall, Moreau, Dali, the whole group of the 20th century modern masters. Which was a great way to learn, and and Leroy Neiman. Those oh, were so big... Leroy Neiman already was back then. Oh yeah, well Frank yeah. Had, Frank had really made his money with Neiman. I mean, it was still just beginning though. The whole Neiman program, you have to realize, in 1980 is really when it took off. So he was he was right there at the beginning. That's that's when the the market just kind of opened up for him as something more than just a, a sports artist. Um, sorry, I've always felt. And, and you and I have kind of crossed paths on this one that what you cut your teeth on shapes you forever as an art dealer in one way or another. Sure. It, it might even affect whether or not you like, you know, the profession enough to stay in it. Oh, absolutely. You know, completely. You know, the one you and I cross on is for me, it was Vargas because I started at San Francisco Art Exchange. You, it's Leroy Neiman. I mean, well, Leroy Neiman, I, I mean, I have to admit, it was Neiman, it was Picasso, and it was Dali. I mean, mm-hmm. if I had to pick three, those were the big three. Because Dali, I, really, Dali was my first artist, as far as an artist that I appreciated growing up, uh, you know, as a kid in New York. Because when I had gone into the museum, uh, I think it was the Met at the time, and they had a painting called Corpus Hypercubicus. That was the painting that I, have, that I kind of felt like I was, I literally walked right into that painting. It's a very three-dimensional painting, if you know the work. They did a print of it that was, unfortunately, I think one of the fakes. But uh, but it's a, it was a great painting. And when I saw it, I just kind of, you know, I was literally maybe 13 years old or something like that. And and that was the one that got me. As far as admiration, it, it was Dali. And Picasso, I didn't really understand until I started representing him. But once I did, then I realized it was the reason he is what he is and who he is and why he is and all of the is's, uh, Picasso's got it. So how do you think that foundation makes you any different from any of the other arguments out there? Picasso? Yeah. Well, number one, I mean, aside from Picasso being, and Dali, by the oh, way, and, and, well, and Neiman one, too, for that their matter. Their dedication to what they would, first of all, the, their, their instinct, the instinct that they were born with, to draw and to paint and to and to be creative, I should say, more than anything else, is instinctual and and it's it is a gift, I'm sure, but it's it's something they were born with. When it, bottom line, ego aside, and all the other stuff, these men worked all the time. They didn't just you know put in eight hours a day and you know sat back <laughs> and and watch TV for the rest of the day. And and Picasso would spend days without sleeping. Leroy was the same way. Dali was the same way. Well, I seem to recall, wasn't there a period of time, and I think it was kind of later in um, Picasso's life, that he wanted to see how prolific he could be in a period of a single year where he was just cranking out? He was challenging himself always. I mean, yeah. he, he went from, 
I think in many ways they're, they're all extremists to some degree, but I think he possibly may have been the most extreme. Uh-huh. Uh, he was also one of the brightest uh, minds relative to understanding the business of art and the personalities that go behind this, that are behind the scenes relative to the dealers, relative to how to pull the strings. I mean, this was a, normally artists strings are being pulled by the dealers. It was exactly the opposite with Picasso for the most part. I mean, he pulled their strings. I mean, his, the dealers that, that you know, literally paid homage to him and bowed before him and, and who made him a lot of money very early on are the ones he kept waiting, you know, to see the newest paintings and would let the guy that he just met come in <laughs> first and purposely walk, you know, through them. He would still kind of hide the best paintings for them. Right. But he wouldn't let them think so. So by the time they came in, they were already angry, upset, and he had them wherever he wanted them. So it wasn't right. He was also putting them on the hook. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It, they weren't do, doing the negotiating. He was, and he was also savvy enough to get everything cataloged. I mean, as, as an appraiser, yeah, that's the one thing I came to appreciate with, that a lot of artists have no concept of what is cataloging their work. You know, he had people who catalog virtually everything. That's why, in, in many ways, it's easy to spot a Picasso fake. And as much as I'm talking about Picasso being as organized as he was, that's yeah. as disorganized as he was, too. I mean, when he died, you know, it took them almost 10 years to, to just, basically just to assemble what was left that had never been cataloged. So, I mean, it's not like everything that he was doing was all very neat and tidy. Just the opposite. And he had people doing it all for him. But he just understood that it had to be done, and it was important to be done, and made sure somebody took care of it. So that was really what it was. It was, it was. it was the understanding of knowing that you need representation, you need somebody there, you need somebody to organize you and get things done for you so that you can just go out and paint and draw and do whatever you do creatively. I, I mean, how else can I compare it? You know, it, it's like... But I don't, don't yeah, underspell that, by the way. That's a huge decision and a huge realization for artists. Absolutely. I mean, oh, really, no, no. I, I watched it's a very it kill careers way. where the artists can't get out of the way of their own business because yeah. they want to be there. They want to be present. And that hurts them as far as the creating side. And also it hurts them on the selling side, too. You know, and the most... And I think it comes down to a really basic point, which is... You can't be as the person creating the artwork saying you're the next best thing since sliced bread. That's got to be said by someone else. Sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it does. And, and at, the, at the same time, you know, it's funny, but in your own mind, you got to be thinking you are. <laughs> and, right. And but agree. you still can't. Yeah. You just can't say well, it. Well, Dolly did. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah, but Dolly built no, no, the no, whole no, persona no, around right. being that That's guy. That's exactly yeah. right. And actually, Leroy, in, in a way, it's, I don't know if you know the story of Leroy's mustache, but that was it. No. He basically, he, he hopped her from Dolly. You know, he basically said, he goes, Did he my face. Did he my Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, no, no. He, he never, uh, no, he was, he was very, very upfront about, uh-huh. about things. No, he basically said, he, you know, that my face is very nondescript uh-huh. without this mustache. You know, he just saw himself as kind of a plain looking Minnesotan, uh, so to speak, although he's probably not happy I just said that. But, uh, but that mustache was his way of just giving himself a brand, you know, a, a way of being recognizable. And they all had, you know, Picasso for all of his, you know, think of how many pictures you see of Picasso without his shirt on. You know, it, it's like, 
you, you remember, you think of him more, if you would just have a vision of Picasso, he's shirtless. Right. And he realized Dolly had this thing with the mustache. He said, well, I'll try that. I kind of see it like Groucho Marx. <laughs> uh, Neiman? Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, Groucho Marx, that was his stage makeup, right? I oh, mean, sure. You yeah. know, that was oh, yeah. just the way of presenting his character that he created. Well, that's exactly what it is. I mean, you, you, know, you have street, to have a didn't sense have of yourself, of yeah. what you're doing. And and that's a business decision. That's not a, 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 it's artistic because it is creative. But it also amounts to, and again, I have my own experiences with Whoa, from my own weird. angles. You know, yeah. they all have something. But I've had this experience with a number of really talented artists. I get a big following that I've worked with and representing. And they're not that guy. They're not performers. No, you no. Know, Most aren't. And Most it's a problem. You, you bring them out to the show. People have been collecting them maybe for years. This is the one opportunity they're going to meet them. And unfortunately, which is fine for them as human beings, but unfortunately for the event, they're just a guy. We're also talking about the top tier of, mm -hmm. of artists. You know, it's not to say to be successful in art uh, as an artist that you have to be all these things. You know, what What made the three tenors the three tenors? You know, it's like... You're right, they look they? like opera stars. Yeah, I mean, they do. Yeah. And, they're also, and one is so different chefs. than the other, yeah. but at the same time, you know, uh, and, and who stood out mostly was the guy with the handkerchief hanging out of his You're absolutely right. Was, you know, that was Pavarotti, wasn't Pavarotti, it? Yeah, absolutely. See, and, and probably the, the only name in the three that I can... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Carrera, the sweetheart, amongst them was probably the one with the best and purest voice, maybe. I, I mean, I don't know enough about opera to say which is well-rounded. When you have such it. an Italian last name as you do, I just have to assume you're an authority. And Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> opera, no. My, my, my grandmother might have been. That's Okay, so I don't roll back here for a second because I don't want to spend too much time talking about the artists themselves. Yeah. Um, not, not that I mind it at oh. all, but what, what I way. really love about this whole thing is that this is like the opportunity for real conversations about what we actually do. And, I, you know, I think you're pointing out something that's tough. We don't do a lot of that because what we do is talk about other people, you know, as a career. It's hard to talk about. Also, I think what we do is sort of like talking about, a, you know, a magician talking about how they do their tricks, too. <laughs> you know, not to say we're deceptive. Yeah, right, right. But it's still, it's... Or an Don't act, let them see you behind the, you know, what goes on behind the curtain. Or an, an actor theater. talking about how, you know, maybe they have lines written around the stage or something like that. But I'm curious, what was the moment, you know, here, here it is, 1980, you said, I got a kid, I got a wife, I got to go get a straight job. The, the closest thing to straight that you figured you could handle with being an art dealer for yeah, the Yeah, that's a little bit strange to begin with, I guess. Right. But I get the choice, by the way, because yeah. obviously I made it myself. But there's also that moment that after you do it, and, you know, you're making your paycheck, quotes, that it somehow either you just found yourself three or four years later and you say, I guess this is what I'm doing, or it clicks and you say, this actually works. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was a series of events that took place. I, okay. I, it actually happened very early on. I, I was working for, for Bowles maybe four or five months. I mean, I literally just started in the business. The only thing I ever sold before were shoes when I was in high school was a summer job, you know, <laughs> was there. And, and this guy, I was working a night shift at Bowles and we had just gotten a Neiman painting in, which at the time was his most 
expensive and most valuable and most well-known painting, which was a painting called Elephant Stampede. And the guy comes walking in the gallery late at night. There was nothing, nobody there. I said, hey, you got to see something right away. And I took him in the back and I gave him a full presentation on the painting. I happened to like the painting and I did a whole full-blown presentation. The next morning I get a phone call and it happened to be the vice president of Circle, Circle Fine Art, yeah. which was at the time the largest corporate art gallery operation in the country. They had like 26 or 30 galleries. They were out of Chicago. And he was their vice president. He just happened to be around. And he says, look, we're opening a new gallery. And, and uh, I'd like to talk to you about being the director of it. So I was six months into the business. Yeah. And I said, I, I have no idea how to direct a gallery. I mean, I really, it, it, and I was, I said, well, you know, they were offering me a good money. But just to show you how good... This is to the guy you were presenting to? This was the guy I was presenting to. The next day he called me, says, I want to take you to lunch. Told me who he was. And he offered me the job of directing a gallery for Circle Uh downtown. He couldn't even tell me where it was because they were opening up a new space. Uh, So I went back to Bowles after accepting the job. And I said, Frank, you know, I'm giving you 30 days notice. I'm leaving. So Bill Turner, who was one of the directors and Serge Sirocco, uh, and I think Oliver Caldwell at the time all got together with Frank and they took me out to dinner and talk about knowing how to turn somebody around. These guys basically turned my head completely around from working for circle as a director <laughs> to staying to work for them with no salary, <laughs> with just commission <laughs> and, and feeling like I'd made the right decision. So I actually turned around to circle and I turned them down. It turned out to be they the They suckered you, but then again, these are exactly the kind of guys you're going to learn how to sell from. Well, that's exactly yeah, right. And, right. And said, so this would have when, been a direct maiden lane, right? This was the maiden lane space, yeah, which yeah. It still had not opened up. Okay. So, and I didn't even know. It was the Frank, you know, here it is, a Frank Lloyd Wright building it turned out to be, right? Yeah. The, the you know, the prototype for the... Um, Guggenheim. Guggenheim. Yeah. So, <laughs> really, my smart move. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's okay. It's a so, trinket shop now. Yeah, so, so basically, yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, that's exactly right. Frank's still here. They're not. Uh-huh. Uh, and they said, you know what you're going to be doing is it's going to, you're going to be like the person who runs a supermarket. You go in, you, you know, you open the, the, the doors and you make sure the shelves are stocked. <laughs> <laughs> I never forgot that. I mean, that's what stayed with me. And I thought about it. And I obviously turned them down. So I, I stayed working for, for Bowles. And then an opportunity came up again to work, go direct circle. Uh, but this time the Owl Gallery. And uh, believe it or not, I took it. And this was about a year and a half later, maybe two, two years so later. So now we're up to 82? So no, this was a little bit later. It was 84, I think. And uh, so I went, to, I went to the Owl. San Francisco is on fire. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah. It was hot. And, and I was um, the Owl. I directed the Owl for almost year and a half, two years. And uh, that's when the art exchange came to me one day and they offered me the directorship of the San Francisco art exchange Mm -hmm. and the money was better and blah, blah, blah. First I turned them down too. I said, you know, I didn't want to just keep moving around. And I said, I'm here, I'm happy. And, and then all of a sudden I wasn't so happy. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but at that time, Sutter street was the street to be on. Yeah. Geary was just starting, and the art exchange was on Geary. So I then... Well, Geary still had a lot of the tenderloin hit in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It still does <laughs> uh, at times. And uh, so I, took, I eventually took the job with Jim and Theron, 
right at the time when the whole Vargas thing exploded. Uh, literally, when I accepted the job, they told me the news. They still hadn't published the news. But what a big sale. And what a perfect thread because you went from, you know, at one point just a couple of years ago being the Neiman guy. And now you've been, you know, handling Vargas, which, you know, are very similar parallel tracks right down to being on the opposite page of each other for years in Playboy. Yeah. Well, and the good thing with Circle, too, I mean, it it was I had managed to to weave through all of these artists. So basically, I was gaining this knowledge of all these artists. And then when I went to Circle, their roster included everybody. They had me at one point, they had signed and published prints for virtually every artist you know who was living a- at the time and they were creating really big programs very big programs. i mean they very were they were creating uh, what most of what uh was the uh um the airte program yeah. Oh, yeah yeah well airte was their big thing and and they had just done the airte alphabet and that sort of thing and that was the big thing i mean they'd been the first publishers of rockwell the first publishers of neiman as far as his prints. Oh, I didn't realize oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I one of the reasons the, the Neiman Foundation still calls me because I know those years when he was with Circle. Right, which would be hard to trace back to considering which is hard to trace a company back to. that went bankrupt. And, yeah, in you fact, know. I still have the price list yeah. from like the last years uh, that I was involved with them. Yeah. And then when I went to the art exchange, the concept of the art exchange was not only are we going to represent Vargas, and and uh, at the time it was Vargas and Vargas uh, and Vargas. No, but the thing with the art exchange, Jim and Theron had also come from Gallery One, which represented Airte and represented a few other artists and Dolly, Dolly. And Picasso yeah. and Chagall and Moreau. So those were our programs too. And I had a lot of experience with those. The, the concept of the art exchange at the time was what art do you collect? We'll get it for you and we'll get it for you for less money. But I helped institute with Jim and Darren monthly meetings and all this sort of stuff. And I developed a whole training uh, manual for how to train, you know, people to sell art. So really, it was during that time when I was suddenly realizing that, hey, I didn't pick this. It picked me and it was paying the bills. And, you know, as, as I've said before, Leroy yeah. paid for the mortgage You're on my house. Six years into the that thing. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that was it, really. Where am I going to go at this point, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've actually had this experience where I've been in galleries where there's a young art dealer, you know, started doing it sometime, usually often right out of art school, you know, for some misguided reason, and they're you know 24 years old or such, and I'll say, you know, how long you been around? I say, well, I'm almost at two years, and I always stop and I go, okay, you're there, big decision. And I don't know if you realize it, but this thing's kind of like the mob. One year, you can visit it, have some fun, sell some art. Two years, you're a professional now. You cross two years, I mean, you're just, you're in it, in it. You rarely see anybody after two years break out of this thing until there's nowhere else to go or whatever else, you know, comes along. But you hit into a thing that I I wanted to get to because you're talking about writing, you know, uh, the training manuals Mm -hmm. and and kind of formalizing the whole program, which, by the way, means in some respects, you've infused some DNA directly into me. Because SFAE was my first Uh, thing. Can't blame me, Danny. I'm sorry. (laughs) And and, and you hit me once over the head with a hammer on it because I think we were hanging out. It was when you were back at Bulls. 
I was moved on. I yeah, was at yeah, Martin Lawrence yeah. or something and uh, had been directing for a while. And, and we were shooting the shit. And I started talking about, well, you know, I've brought along with me because I'm a big believer and I don't hear it anywhere else. This concept of like these seven stages of an art sale. And, and, and I was attributing it mostly to Jim and Theron. Say, but I tweaked it a little bit my own and kind of made it my own deal along the way. And like, yeah, that's not Jim and Theron. That's me. I wrote that thing. <laughs> Can you talk to me about it for a little bit? Oh, because God. Now well, the I, I will tell you this. I mean, Jim and Theron, without a doubt, were yeah. also a part of that. I mean, that was something. Oh, the three discounting of us, them. Yeah, the three of us really put all that together. I but mean, the understanding that this is a thing that comes in chapters and yeah. that you have to build upon it. And if you don't do chapter one right, then you can't do chapter two right. And stop me if I'm wrong in that. Thinking. No, no, no. It's the truth. I mean, yeah. and, and uh, you know, and to be frank with you, uh, you know, I've been out of the gallery business so long now in terms of training people and, and directing a gallery myself. I mean, the last time... Look around you. This is my gallery business. I'm right where with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I'm, I mean, I'm pointing time, at my office, by no, the no, way. No, no, I... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I know what you're pointing to. I'm here. No, and, and I... I and and I, I will tell you this. That actually came from Bowles. When I started at Bowles Hopkins, not, not the same details that went into those steps, but the concept of training a consultant how to sell art was something that when I, and that's one of the reasons it stuck with me. When I started working for Bulls, it was the first time they were instituting this program. And, and there were five of us that started in, in the, started with it. They only, they, it lasted maybe a year, then they stopped it. But it just so happened what it was, was a week of orientation of how to sell art. Then it was only three steps, I think, or four steps. You know, I don't remember exactly what it Say was. Say hi, show up, but the, I, and get a the check. idea was <laughs> that we were able to not just get thrown onto the floor, but had this classroom-like environment. Yeah, where we had to learn something. I'd been a, always been a good student. I was a student who got a lot of into a lot of trouble, but I appreciated the the element of education. <laughs> and I realized, well, this is something that should be applied. It makes sense. And the whole concept of becoming a professional would, stayed with me. And, and that's how the whole seven steps evolved was how do you become a professional? Well, you need to have a structure. You know, how do you even recognize what a professional is in this business? Mm -hmm. Uh, because it, it, you don't, nobody identifies it in many ways. Uh, art dealer is an art dealer. And what I tried to institute with people was if you're going to make it in this business, you know, where where the robe of of a responsibility that says, hey, I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to be a, a professional art dealer is a noble profession. Somebody who's selling art is just somebody who's selling art, and there is a difference. And I take it very seriously, and that's how I eventually became an appraiser and an auctioneer. Because I, I said, what am I going to do when I can't just sell art anymore? <laughs> you know, and and fortunately, it, it, it's proved true. Uh, so that's really how they how they started. And the first thing, naturally, with step one was a greeting. <laughs> you know, how do, you got to have a greeting. You got to know how to engage that person walking in the door. And and then it was, well, what do you do after you greet someone in a gallery? And that's how step two developed, which was, you know, show, present, pick a piece of art, <laughs> you know, engage them in, in finding a piece of art that either they focus on or you focus on, and that was the whole concept of find something to focus them, all right? And that was that step, 
which I don't remember if that was two or three now. Uh-huh. See, it's been so yeah, long. I have steps from that too. Right. The steps from my, but I think it was greeting and then focus. Yeah, yeah greeting, focus. Uh, basically, romance the art on right. the wall. Get their attention. Take it off the wall. Bring it into the room. And that's where you started your presentation. And within the presentation, there were five steps to the presentation too. And that was presenting the art, the artist, the gallery, the market, and the value. Those five I will never forget because that was the essence of what you were talking about yeah. and what someone wanted to hear, uh, whether they realized it or not themselves. I mean, that was what, that's what it's all about. I mean, art is that. Present the art. If, if they don't have any interest in the art, you've got to move on to something else. Yeah. You know, so if, if you're not getting acknowledgement of that, what are you doing? And you're speaking you're to just the point wheels. in the viewing room. I'm talking about yeah. just the presentation in the viewing room. Right. Uh, yeah, if they don't love the art, yeah. who cares who the artist is? Exactly. Right. I mean, it, does, it, it really doesn't make a difference. And the art is, the art is it. I mean, anybody will tell you what stops them. The art. They don't know who they are. I mean, yes, if you're walking in through a museum and if you know there's a certain exhibition going on of a particular artist, but we're talking about the everyday activity of a gallery. Somebody walks into a gallery, they're struck by something, hopefully, well, that you have. The and point that's the I used art. to always make as a director and then afterwards, which amazes me that people consistently, I have to you know say this to people because it seems that they don't even acknowledge it. No one wakes up in the morning deciding they're going to buy a piece of art. Well, that was the other thing we, talk, we used to talk about. Just doesn't, yeah. I mean, that's anybody walks in, anybody you're going to sell to, you've sold to a person who had no idea yeah. they were going to buy that yeah. day, period. And you've got to assume that to begin with. Right. You know, unless they came in and said, by the way, I'm looking for such and such. Can you take it off the wall? Can you bring it into the room? Can you show it to me? That's only happening <laughs> Tell me everything to the new about guy. It. The uh, new uh, guy, by the way, who is not good enough to stay around to be an art dealer, but he will get that one his first two oh, weeks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stories that, that uh, you know, I can spend hours, especially with the art exchange, telling you, and I don't know if Jim and Theron ever told you the story of one of the clients who, whose name I won't mention, but who just turned out to be this young kid who was about 21 years old at the time who came in with a t-shirt and jeans. And when he walked into the gallery, the entire staff kind of split, you know, like the Red Sea because they were all doing something else. Uh-huh. Cause they knew if I was standing on the floor, I wanted to make sure whoever came in through those doors, I routine. everybody was has a greeted. call. Someone Every, lost yeah. a piece of paperwork. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they all split. And I said, you know what? I'm going to pick this gentleman up and I'm going to do the, I'm going to take him into the room and do the presentation. Right. And to be honest with you, I thought there wasn't a chance in the world this guy was going to buy art. Yeah. But I had to prove something. I had to show them, look, it doesn't matter. You never know who's walking in the door. Sure enough. And I did. I presented a, a bunch of Vargas originals and drawings and paintings and prints, gave them the whole presentation. The next morning, there's a message from me that Mr. So-and-so's trust, which was a bank in, I, I won't even say the city, but it was in California called and he is going to take those three pieces the money will be wired to you <laughs> truthfully danny i didn't remember the guy's name uh-huh I mean, to be honest and that's my fault but i did the full presentation i had the card right <laughs> and it was this young kid turned out he had just inherited uh, his father had just sold a, a major business of for like hundreds of millions of dollars 
He'd been given a lot of money to go buy art. And that's what he did. That that deal was about $240,000. And that was in like 1988 or 89. I think he's still a client of the galleries. I don't know what it is. I think those guys have more stories of that kind than just oh, yeah. about any gallery yeah. that I work with. Well, especially with that type of personality, because what they're showing, you know, at that time we had Vargas, obviously, uh, but we had Ronnie Wood then too. Right. <clears throat> so there was a lot of the rock and roll. We used to get all the rock and roll characters and that was good and bad. <laughs> uh, but, you know, certainly all, all the performers who were in town would stop in. My daughter's got every autograph from, you know, Phil Collins and Eric Clapton and all those guys. And, you know, uh, well, the Stones, you know, because you were, uh, I think you, you were still in my, yeah. Did my time with them. Did your time with them. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that's how it all started. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's how the whole thing started with, to begin with, with, with the Ronnie Wood stuff was because of, um, uh, Ronnie's manager at the time was buying air tape sculptures from us. That part I never heard. Yeah. Oh yeah. And That's I know it, it was a casual encounter that they ran into he, each other. They, they always and, used to stay at the cliff. At that time, yeah. the cliff across the street that was the go-to for was them. the Four Seasons. Yeah. And since it was right across the street, they you know they had no problem with being recognized or mobbed or that sort of thing. And, right. And they just come cross right across the street. Yeah. And this guy, and you wouldn't have recognized this guy anyway because he was a manager. He was behind the scenes. But he managed, you know, Led Zeppelin. He was like one of the biggest names in the rock and roll business. And he had just signed Ronnie. Oh, that's not Nick. No, that's, that's not Nick. Phil. Nick, that's Phil. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, was Phil yeah. Carson. Well, I know pretty well. Yeah. yeah. That was Phil Carson. Mm-hmm. And Phil basically bought, I don't know if it was four or five Airte sculptures. Mm-hmm. And actually paid us in cash with the next night's receipts. Yeah. We were in the middle of the Clift Hotel with this, you know, everybody shaggy here and, you know, barely awake. And he's counting fives, tens, and twenties and, <laughs> you know, tens of thousands of dollars. That doesn't look like a drug deal going down. You don't know how hotel. familiar that is to me, by the way. My first gig was working for a company that was in the touring business. And every now and then these bands would kind of go sideways on us and we wouldn't get paid. And every now, you know, and I would go without a paycheck for a couple of weeks. And then some morning along the way, my boss would show up with a pocket just packed with fives and singles and stuff and that's how you get paid because you had to go to the back of the box office to finally collect the money yeah, yeah. that's it <laughs> no and that was it yeah so that, i mean that's how the ronnie wood got started uh-huh. in fact had had it, had it not been for phil ronnie would have never shown up for his first exhibition i mean we had everybody there that, oh, that day. never changed oh no i i know that but we this was the very first show and obviously, we were all very excited and, and a lot of press, a lot of publicity. We had, I mean, I don't know if you got Bill Graham was there and sure. uh, all kinds of, I actually asked Bill. Well, family Dog showed up a lot, not just him, but the people in yeah, the company yeah. came in a lot. Yeah. But uh, at that time, I, I asked Bill, I said, what do you think of Ronnie Wood's uh, art? He, said, he looked at me, he goes, oh, I think Ronnie's a hell of a guitarist. <laughs> and, oh, that was terrible. Terrible. Yeah, but, well, that's uh, kind of him. So, yeah, well, that yeah, was him. Yeah. yeah. No, but it was a great show. The only problem was, guess who wasn't showing up for his own show? <laughs> was Ronnie. And and suddenly, I forget Ronnie's, his like his best friend who hangs out with him. Uh, he, he came down to the gallery. This is already an hour and a half when the press is waiting, everybody's waiting. And he says, look, I can't wake him up. <laughs> he's not, he's let, not. let me ask you a question. Was he an American? The the friend? Yeah. I don't remember, to tell you the truth. Okay. I think he was. Yeah, I think it was like, he was a roadie, but I think he was a close, not really a roadie, but he was a close friend of Ronnie's. Does the name Stroker ring a bell? Ah, that's it. That's yeah. who it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So anyway, I mean, so Phil turned around and said, 
so, so anyway, Strunkle goes, he, he, I can't get him up. He's not going to come. Phil turned around and said, he's coming. Next thing you know, within 10 minutes, Ronnie was there. <laughs> so that was his job. That's why he, that's why they paid him the bucks to do what he did, you know, but that's, and that was the first, that was the first Ronnie Wood exhibit. At that point, it was, it wasn't long before I, I uh, well, I was still there for a couple of years and then I left. Yeah. The one thing I, I should mention between it all, yeah. even before I got to the art exchange, and I think this is important, people out there trying to become a dealer or wanting to become an art dealer. In between my gig of working for, working for Circle and working for the art exchange, I actually left the art exchange to direct a gallery briefly called Prestige, which was known for their Dolly collection. And we actually had the Lincoln and Dolly vision painting. Oh, that was the time. And that was the big, that was during the really hard of, this was 84, 83, 84. At the time, we shared the space with Walton Gilbert Gallery, which was Harris Stewart. I mentioned him. He, he's not with us any longer, but he became a very dear friend. And Harris was a member of the American Society of Appraisers. And I saw what he was doing as an appraiser. And that's when I really started taking myself a little bit more seriously in the business. And that's really when I decided to be an appraiser. And it was Harris who sponsored me then. I'd been appraising art from when I started as a director for Circle, because you have to. But that's real, those are really evaluations. Those are insurance appraisers. But Harris was... That's a tough conversation I get into with a lot of people, too. Because yeah, I get asked to do it a lot. Mostly, I, I refuse. The only, let's put it this way. Anyone could be an appraiser. There's no license to be an appraiser. There is, however, accreditations that if you have to do charitable donations or things like that, then you have to be accredited with one of the you know, three or four organizations in the country. Well, my line, and maybe you can correct me if I'm going around, down the wrong path with this, you know, people come to me all the time for programs that I've published myself or people I've worked with for a real long time to do appraisals. And I always say to them, I go, I want you to go to your insurance company first. Whoever you're going to need to go to, because this is all about you being afraid this gets stolen or disappears in a fire or something, contact those people and ask them if you had this document, would they cover it? Because my fear is I turn into just a guy all of a sudden when the real, you know, when it really comes down. Suddenly it's stolen and the insurance company says, that's just a guy who sells art. That's not an appraiser. Well, that's that, not the real thing. Actually, yeah, that's exactly right. The insurance company will take the initial appraisal that, that, that you get. I know, they'll say that. It's almost like a trap. So that you can pay the premium on it. Right. But if it gets stolen and if it gets you know, lost in a fire or, or destroyed in a fire or, or whatever. whatever. Yeah. Happens, or, or the ladder goes through it. Then they're going to ask you to get a formal appraisal from an accredited appraiser. Right. So, yeah. But so what I did was I had Harris sponsor me and that's when I said, Hey, I'm going to really learn this because I'll never know if I need it or not. And I really didn't need it. I didn't need it for the next, I mean, I did it. I, I would do an appraisal here or there, but I didn't really need it in the sense of helping to, to finance myself until I, until I formed my company, which was Avanti Fine Arts, you know, uh, dealers, appraisers, and auctioneers. And, uh, well, you that's didn't go full-time with it until you left Bowles. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was doing like it the more aughts, the last right? few years, but yeah, I yeah. didn't really, I left Bowles in 2001 and that's when I really went into it whole hog. 
And and but then I still but I still deal. I mean, it's still I'm, I still deal. <laughs> I'm still dealing out there. Those of you interested, no. Hey, guess yeah. what? I don't say no to making money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then you complemented it with becoming an auctioneer. Yeah. Well, that was really again. It was sort of fortuitous. Uh, we were using a guy. Uh, I was at Bowles at the time, and, and Frank had been doing auctions, gallery auctions, when I started with him in 1980. Uh-huh. In fact. The first auction, 81. The first auctioneer that, that we used at that time was Albert Scaglione, who ended up starting Park West. But he was still a hell of an auctioneer, great auctioneer. We, but we were, it was 1994, I think. So the, the auctioneer we were going to use was tragically, well, I mean, he, he, he died in a car crash, but it turned out he'd had a heart attack. And uh, we're sitting around our, our weekly meeting, and we said, so what are we going to do? And Frank really had the brilliant idea of, uh, well, who, who could we use? Tony, you're the actor. Why don't we send you to auctioneering school? <laughs> and that was exactly it. And they paid for the Missouri auctioneering school. How long did that take? The school? Yeah. The school was about, I want to say five days. It was like a week of really intense training at a, at a school in uh just outside of outside of St. Joseph, Missouri. It was really it's it it is. It's one of the best schools for auctioneering. It's where all the tobacco, cattle, I mean the really hardcore auctioneers uh learn. That's where you learn your basic chant and that sort of stuff. And that's where I went. And uh And do you think it matters? I mean do you think once you've learned it from a school like that it's all interchangeable. Could you go auction cattle? You think no, okay. no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even begin without. Well, I mean, aside from the knowing what parts of you know what makes cattle important, but I mean stylistically. Well, no, no, no. But the point was stylistically. I mean, and I, I know they do the, the chant that I do. The I mean, chant. it's a different yeah. language. It's a right. completely different language, and I could I could learn it. Yeah. Because I know the fundamentals to do it. I know what you need to have, and and I know. And I, because of going to the school, I know what you have to break down to do it. But you need to practice it. I mean, you have to practice that chant. So it's those guys are almost like cantors in a temple. They sell things by the half cent. Yeah. I mean, and and really, and the first thing they teach you in that school is you have to, you know, pattern your chant to suit number one what you're selling the audience you're selling it to. And there was only one group that was represented relative to art and antiques and that sort of thing. Uh, now, is this the same track or is it a totally different track that where like the Sotheby's folks come from and, you no, know, Butterfield? Sotheby's, and... Sotheby's don't use a chant at all. No, don't get me wrong. They may have been trained there, but no, yeah. they, they, tra- they usually train their own people. Yeah. Uh, and I learned that as well. I mean, I studied that too because I was, I'm obviously auctioning art but and it's I do, kind of but like I do charity auctions i do all kinds of other things because i can do other stuff but you're emulating a little bit of the sotheby's style are you absolutely yeah oh no no absolutely and you have to i mean because you got to take certain classes that suited your needs right and obviously this, the class that i took was this class with i can't i don't believe i can't think i can't remember their name they're an old auction house out of detroit anyway so i took their class and and that was really suited to selling Art, antiques, you know, uh, collectibles, fine art, fine collectibles, not, you know, uh, flea market 
type items, because a lot of that is that too. Uh, so I studied with them, and that is the typical Sotheby's, Christie's, you know, Doyle's uh, style. Mm-hmm. And all it is is really, it's not so much speaking fast. In fact, just the opposite. It's just uh, clarity is the one thing that they always talk about, which I'm not being right now because my voice is hoarse from the last auction I did. But the clarity is what's most important. Everybody's got to know what you're talking about. I mean, if you're selling things for $500,000 or $50,000 or $5,000, they, they have to know what you're talking about yeah. and what the number is. It's not like cattle. It's not like tobacco. Right, which is a set it's a commodity. Different, a, a different type of we, language to, right. to begin with. And the people who are buying it are only part of that trade. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it, and, and it has to be slower and it has to be. No, precise. I mean, I only got to see you in action once, but you were doing like a highly compressed version again, back almost like the seven steps, all, well, the five at least. Yeah. Crunched no, no, into absolutely. a yeah. minute per piece. Yeah. So it's like, here's a piece. It's beautiful because of this. This is by the artist. We all know he's great because of this. Recently, they've been selling for this kind of money out there. Here's the market, blah, blah. And by the way, these guys are the guys to get the best pieces. Yeah. Gallery. Now move, right? Yes. No, that's true. And just for your own general information, I've actually finally moved the people that, I, you know, my, most of my clientele that I do auctions for yeah. out of that so that they're now publishing better catalogs. See, you don't have to do that at Sotheby's and Christie's because the catalog does it for you. And that's the way it should be. Well, they also cluster what over used to happen, of years. Well, what, yeah, what used to yeah. happen was I would spend to do... 250 items, I would spend five and six hours on that stage uh-huh. <laughs> all by myself without a bathroom break uh, <laughs> to, and, you know, to, to, to be able to say all that and to keep it entertaining and to keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but now, like the, the auction I just did for Gallery Michael and the ones, you know, I was doing for Bowles, uh, the catalog is as good as the Sotheby's catalog. I mean, if you look at them, they're very precise. They're very detailed in terms of the specific work of art. And that's what I'll say in the, at the beginning of my auction. I'll tell the audience that I'm not going to stop at each piece. I mean, I will point out some highlights of particular examples, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each piece because, because they've otherwise, had the opportunity because otherwise we'll be here for and, five, six hours. Right, and right. You don't want to do that, and neither do I. <laughs> so now it becomes more about the time. So and now I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, my I average about fifty to sixty uh, works uh, uh, an hour. That catalog also though becomes kind of part of the optics too, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's like this. Now you're in a more formal, uh, you when, know, when auction. I started, when I started doing sale. gallery auctions, all we had was a, a catalog. I mean, these are gallery auctions now, not Sotheby's and Christie's. You get like Xerox sheets. That's exactly right. Yeah. In fact, it, it, <laughs> there are a few that are just starting out that hire me. That that's what they give me is still Xerox sheets. Right. And I kind of try to educate them along the way, you know, because it never works. It just never works with just that. I mean, I've had people try to reproduce it. You know, they try to save money with the catalog and reproduce a, a black and white image in the catalog. And that uh, just the art business. <laughs> you know, Pennywise I mean, and Pennywise. Mean, that's a consistency. You Very see a lot of just like not understanding that. And I always call this uh, uh, signaling. 
You know, all the stuff you think you can cut pennies on is the stuff that they see and actually the stuff that the public uses as a measurement of, is this a place where people actually buy these things? Yeah. Right. Whereas everybody thinks it's it's in the art and it's in my words and that's the end of it. And yeah, and it, it's, it can exactly be, but right. you're selling and, and, from and, a hole. Yeah, and people will hire me because they know it. They know I, I I could be very successful with auctions, and they'll hire me thinking, "Hell, he's doing it. He'll be successful for us." And I try to remind them, guys, it's not just me. Right. I mean, Frank Bowles is a great auction because their staff does a tremendous job of pre-selling that auction. Well, that was my first exposure to it too when I was working at Martin Lawrence, and we auctions were. Maybe fifty percent of the business at that point. In some, respects. I think it might still be maybe <laughs> Martin Lawrence. Yeah, I don't, I don't follow them as much anymore. But we, you know, got direct commissions from everybody we brought in. Sure. So you pre-set up of everybody. You did. You sold it. You did the entire presentation on the phone yeah. before they came into the gal. You know, into the auction house itself. But l- let me ask you this, because um, I'm thinking about this as you're talking. You, you mentioned you started. You know. The Park West really hadn't gotten going yet. And then, in fact, you know, he was coming from that place at that yeah. point. And, and, uh, this is before there are shows on TV that shows, that show auctions. Way and, before. And, and before there were 13, you know, cop, you know, people copying, uh, Park West on all the cruise ships. And before now you have companies that do nothing but tour around, uh, for charities mm-hmm. and bring in their own inventory. And then the charity markets that they're going to have their auction and they're all theme based sometimes. Uh, we support those every now and then. Some of them are rock and roll sure. themes, some sports. Um, so is that helping or is that hurting? Because I'm thinking on one side, the public's getting kind of educated by it. It's familiar to them. But on the other, it's kind of getting whored out. It, you know, it, it, it's like anything else. Something works. It's, it's, you know, it's like, let's go to the well until it dries up. The, the reality is whatever is being done has been done before in a different way. In the early years before the Internet, and before you'd have the type of auctions you're talking about now, where everybody's doing these theme auctions, what you had was these trucks that would go around to various malls. I don't know if you're old enough to even remember them, Danny, but I don't think so. They, would, not they, familiar. Would, they would go out because I did a few of those. <laughs> yeah. So I know. And what they would do is they would buy up inventory that you could buy, you know, for, $10 a painting, $50 a painting. And it was it was purely just decorative. And they would come with this truck and for a weekend would set up in this mall on, on a holiday weekend where they'd get all of these things and they would do what they called auctions. Yeah. All right. And for about two hours, they would do an auction. For the rest of the time, you could go there and just buy the art, <laughs> you know, and whatever the price was on, on the sticker. Uh-huh. But for an hour, they do an auction and people would get excited and you get small crowds of 10, 20. They, they would sell things for $100, $50, $200, and they paid $5. They paid $10. Well, it sounds like it's a tent show move. That's exactly what it was. Right. I mean, that's a, and that, you, you got a talker out front who then shows yeah. you a little bit of the guy swallowing the fire. And then if you want to see the rest of the show, we're inside the tent. And essentially what happened was those same people, not necessarily literally the same people, but the same concept was then carried over and put into a lot of these uh, cruise ships. And a lot. you got to remember, there was, a, there was a lot of things going on in, in the 80s where all this art was published. There's all this paper out there, yeah, limited edition paper by very talented artists. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it's that. It's just that. It, 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 
You create an overabundance because suddenly the market's buying it up, buying it up, and then suddenly the market stops, and all you have is, you know, is, is all supply and no demand. Well, underlining it all has been kind of this thing that really got born heavily out of the 80s, that notion of the art has a certain investment value to it. And you didn't have to speak to it, but it, it drove the engine to all of this. You know, mm-hmm. people went to an auction thinking they were getting something. Right. The funny part about it still is, do. Yeah, but but here's the funny part. I remember going to these things back when I was doing it in the '90s and thinking, you know, and feeling a little bit guilty. It's like, you know, this is this is old inventory, is what it is. That's why it's in the auction. But you know what was in some of those auctions in the late '90s? Uh, uh, electric chair by Warhol for fourteen hundred dollars. Well, that's what I, that's exactly what I was going to tell you. I mean, that one always sticks out of my mind. Yeah. And I remember laughing, like, no. "Oh God, this is yeah, it's Warhol." But they, they don't know, they don't understand. This is no. the one we can't sell. But the you, one that yeah. now sells for forty thousand dollars. What people don't realize, again, it's taking people behind the curtain. Sotheby's, Christie's, you know, Bonnet, all the major auction houses. Yeah are doing exactly the same thing as the smaller venue. Oftentimes, the art is not in very good condition. That's why it's important to get a condition report if you're a buyer, number one, Mm -hmm. from them. The the good thing is they'll send you a condition report. The bad thing is they'll cut off the image in the catalog so that you don't see that little detail. But it is oftentimes, you know, that's what an auction is. I mean, you don't go to an auction... If you're buying a house at auction, you don't expect to pay top dollar for the house you're buying at auction. You expect to get a deal because there's something off about it. That's why that house is being sold at auction. Someone got killed in it. (laughs) Somebody got killed in it. Yeah. Art is very much the same way. Either it was inherited, people don't want it anymore, whatever it is. Now, the fact is, yes, the difference with with art is you do set records that are ridiculous. 90% of the time, the people setting those records are the dealers to begin with that represent or are involved in the artist or already have it sold. But uh, So what are you feeling different out there now? I mean, you even mentioned, you know, things post pre-internet, you know, we're talking about we're living in a different universe so people are much more familiar with auctions and have a different sense of it. Oh, yeah. Well, for years. But the I numbers mean, still keep on going in certain parts of no, our business. No, no, no. And it always will be. I mean, it's just the more people who, you know, people who suddenly come into money want to, you know, we're a more educated society. Art has become more of a part of our lifestyle where it was reserved for the elite at one time, you know, centuries ago. It's become, you know, just as much a, a part of everyday life, you know, for the average person who has some sort of education. Even, 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 you know, non-educated people appreciate art. They buy it. You know, they're, they're going to those fairs. They're seeing the art that, that's on the street and, and they're paying $5 or $10 for a piece of art. So art is always going to be there. It's important. I mean, it, it's the very nature of our world. Arts and sciences are, are, are the creative forces of, 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 of history. I mean. Yeah, but it's almost two different tracks. I mean, what's great for art, and I agree. Yeah, but they, both start, a boom. they both start from zero. You see, they both have nothing to begin with. Oh, I agree. I'm, I'm about to oh, no, make I, a, I, I, take a business yeah. question at this, though. Is what's great for art, being in such a boom where it's everywhere now, much more than I think it's ever been in history, um, is that great for the art business? I think the art business was designed around the notion of the exclusivity and the giving access to the bourgeoisie. On one level. 
but what you what you you're gonna make me feel real good if you correct me and make me believe it. No, no, but the yeah. fact is, it, it you know, I, I'm I'm first generation American. My heritage is Italian, so I I was visiting Italy from when I was a kid because my grandparents were there and I would yeah. go see them every summer. We're a young society, relatively speaking, in this world. But when you go to places like Italy or France and Germany and you know, nations that have, that have had cultural revolutions of all kinds and industrial, I mean, all kinds of types of revolutions, you realize arts, the artists have been around for a long time. I mean, there are paintings there that are 400 and 500 years old, you know, that of artists you've never heard of or I've never heard of who may have been known at one point, you know, during their lifetime and actually may have made a living at what they did during their lifetime. Mm -hmm. But after that, it died with them. Same thing that happens now. So there's always, there's always, it's not like there's more art suddenly than, than we know what to do with. There are more prints than there ever was before. Oh no, I think it's more part because of our technologically, lives. we we were a different society. So, but a lot of that, you know, is is junk. A lot of it isn't, and that's how you have to kind of weave through. But at that time, everybody who was painting was not good either. You know, during the Renaissance, <laughs> just because you were an artist in the Renaissance didn't mean you were a good artist in the Renaissance. Look, I, I a friend of mine was a dealer who started putting art into Costco. Mm-hmm. And he was putting Picasso, Chagall, Moreau, a lot of the, the things from Derrière Le Miroir and, and you know, the, the old art magazines. Yeah. Okay. Which is exactly what you'll find at auction houses now. It's still the same lithograph from the same plate that was done that created the signed and numbered piece. Right. That existed in an art magazine mm-hmm. at the time. It's the same exact thing that's happening today. It's just the time when it was a magazine, the magazine was mass distributed. Most of them were read and thrown away. Mm-hmm. Some, le- some, you know, stayed. Some people kept them as collectors and, and started selling them as collectibles as the book itself, the magazine itself. Then somebody started cutting them out and selling them individually. All right. So you got $300, $200, $500, $1,000, $2,000. $2, I've been at auctions and I've done auctions that people have paid five and $6,000 for these same images, but they are the lithographs. They are genuine lithographs. And at one time they used to sell for a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. At one time you couldn't even sell them. Anyway, a friend of mine was, who, who was been buying these up for years was putting them in Costco. And there was a big to-do about this art at Costco and blah, blah, blah. And the New York Times interviewed me wondering, you know, what my opinion was as far as this art in Costco. And I said, you know, art is for the people. You know, what's wrong with putting it in Costco? I mean, does it take it away from what the art is because it's not showing in a gallery? Does the gallery make it more important? Or is it the art itself? And it gets back to what I told you when, when I was teaching the steps. What comes first in that presentation? It's the art. It, it'll always come down to that as far as I'm concerned. It's not the venue so much as where, what it is that you have. Right. You know, that's first and foremost. And then the artist is second. <laughs> Nothing, no, no disrespect to that artist, but a lot of the art has lasted long after the artist will. <laughs> but I think a lot of artists would agree with that too. 
I think they would. Yeah. No, no, I but I mean pridefully would. so. You know, yeah. if, no, if I, the, the art has to be important based upon their personality. Well, I know a lot of artists who wouldn't agree. Yeah. They put themselves first, but that's that's another animal. <laughs> uh, but no, but yeah, that's a, I, I do think that's that's generally the case. So that's that's my point, really, of it all is, yes, I mean, th- does it get diluted? Does it get overdone? You know, is there too much of something? Absolutely. And, and I was the first to criticize G. Clay's. But at the same time, who am I to criticize G. Clay if that's the format that's being used today, which is obviously being accepted? My first reaction to G. Clay's when it came be- out was... I, I, I used to reference immediately well, when serography came out, it was seen in the same kind of context. That was just a oh, yeah. cheaper no, no, way absolutely. of making a lithograph. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no. And that's my point. That's exactly my point. You know, you can't, you know, because I'm, I'm in a, that, that's like saying, what's this, a lithograph? You know, what's this, an etching? Big right. deal. And then we got to take it back to I'm sure when the first etching got made, someone said, this is not an original. This yeah. is just some copy. And, that's, and right. guess what? That's how they were treated, too. Uh-huh. You know, they weren't, they weren't shown in galleries. Right. We're the, we're the country that made limited edition prints uh, popular. I think that's a big thing I'm hoping to even get to in this. I'm amazed, and, and I fall into this category too, of how many people in our business have such a little sense of it being a business of, with heritage. Oh, it's yeah. just kind of assumed it always existed or it's recent or whatever. I don't care. And the fact is, we've inherited this from something. And I think getting to the roots of it does mean something, too. I think there's something to learn from understanding where it's been before, like in any profession, basically, yeah. or any discipline. And I don't still know exactly where to pinpoint it. Well, I can find I, marks along the way. No, no, I, I, I've actually uh, looked at it and I've written about it a little bit. Realistically, prior to World War II, there was no art market in America. I mean, there was obviously that we had a few museums, we had uh, galleries, but they were few and far between. The movement of art in America is post-World War II. See, that's how I always say it, too. Yeah. And, I mean, and, we can identify a gallery business before that, but what we've inherited No, you really can't post- even identify a gallery business before that. Just the basic notion of a bunch of paintings hanging in a room and a guy pointing museums, at them. Museums, the but that's the thing, and even far and few and far between. I mean, people like Costelli started in their home. That was where they did their presentations. They didn't have a gallery, and we really like had, we think of it today. And we had brokers essentially. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, there were dealers. Don't get me wrong. Right. Absolutely, we had dealers. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, you want to go back to dealers. You know, there's some great history. Right. So I'm saying, so the whole movement of of art is really post World War II, but then we kind of took over the landscape of the art world, the international art world. Right. Partly because Europe was destroyed, you got to remember. <laughs> you know, there was no economy. I mean, they were just rebuilding from a devastating war. France, you know, Italy, Great Britain, those were the hubs of art activity, of cultural activity. But what they did have before World War II was this enormous, prolific era, you know, between World War I and World War II, where all of these great artists had emerged. And the whole modern art movement that eventually moved to the United States really started. But it was what was brought over from that group. Futurist, Bauhaus, yeah, all those yeah, guys exactly. come, all coming that, over. But, yeah. but it were people visiting Europe that were bringing it back here. And the influences of the schools here at that time, you know, if you look at, you know, the Jackson Pollocks, I mean, the, the whole movement of the New York School and the action painters and all of that. It, it all had a lot to do with the social networking that was going on in our educational system 
relative to art and art education in the United States, which was something very new. Well, there's, you know, I think you've, you've really hit something there too, which I've only, I've connected in other contexts, but not art, which is just this incredible phenomenon where I only know it, actually, I usually reference it from the world of the sciences and letters, but I think it fit, probably fit in art too. In the Great Depression hit, you had all of these people graduating from these incredible institutions, really brilliant people with unbelievable levels of, you know, education, and thought they were going to go out and be, have careers as scientists or literary careers or whatever it was, and there was nothing waiting for them. And they wound up becoming school teachers, not just in colleges, but in the secondary education system. Sure. And, and I wonder if that happened in art, too. Where it went from basically some kind of arts and crafts type teacher and to a person who went to the Chicago Institute and got their, you know, uh, a master's and now is teaching at, you know, Gramercy Park uh, High School. No, no, and absolutely, that's exactly where they went. That's how that's how they made their living. A lot of those artists mm-hmm. made their living as teachers. Uh, and and it does go. Don't get me wrong. It does go back before World War II. But I'm talking about on on a a, a a mass scale. I'm talking about on a level where the influences that that we have are far reaching, you know, and, and are international as opposed to just regional, which is what all the movements were going right. on in the United States. But there's a definite line there. There's a line where we start as a people thinking about art galleries as a formal thing. Yeah, but you have to realize something. The, the whole concept of art galleries, the way we see them today, you go into a presentation room with the artist. Right. Presenter, and that's still... Is well, a, that's pretty it, recent, too. The presentation room is a whole other animal. That's, that, that's very recent. Yeah. In fact, a lot of it was started out here. Ed Corey is the one who started it here. Yeah. In New York. I never I, Growing up in New York, I, I'd never been to a gallery where I saw a presentation room until I started working for Bolt. Yeah, Union Square, right? Was, yeah, Ed yeah. Corey started... In mm-hmm. fact, he trained a lot of the dealers out here who did that, who carried that over. Circle didn't have a presentation room when I became a director for Circle. I'm the one who put a who put a presentation room in the Owl. <laughs> really, that used to be an office. I you know it's no, getting it's lost me. again too. I'm seeing a lot less pre- in the way of presentation room. Well, because the, that's traditionally Europe was that way. I mean, Europe, you walked into a gallery, nobody approached you. You know, you would just walk in. Somebody would be sitting at a desk in the back. Usually, it was the owner or the director. That was the whole staff. <laughs> And and basically, you know, what's that on the wall? And it's, it is. And, well, and, that's still and, the way of an upstairs gallery. It is you the way of an upstairs gallery. No, no, and it is the way. It is the way of an upstairs gallery. You know, in, in a lot of ways, it goes back to that because financially, very few people can afford to put a gallery in a mainstream location. Beverly Hills, where I just was, a perfect example. There used to be a whole stream of galleries on, on Rodeo Drive, but you've got all these retailers it's buying happening again. I mean, the retailers are just. Basically saying, hey, I'm going to give you 10 times what they're willing to pay you. Right. The math doesn't work anymore in the business to do that. So it does have to go back to that. But I thought you were doing it. But then you look at Gogasian, you know, and that's what he is. He doesn't really have a presentation room. His whole gallery is a presentation room. He presents one work of art in his his whole gallery. Yeah, he's also not getting street traffic in the same way either. He doesn't need street traffic. Right, exactly. (laughs) But I mean, that's why you have a presentation room. No, no, exactly. We need to get you away from the stroller and the kid with the balloon and everything and and isolate this conversation. But I thought you were going to go into a thing that's kind of a a, a meme of mine that I hit all the time and probably people listen to this podcast and they get really sick and tired of it. I kneel it to World War II too but for a slightly different, for a different reason, which is, here's my rap on it. The United States is a country of nouveau riche. If you grew up uh-huh. in Europe, 
you know, there's a tradition of art and it's a very different kind of tradition. It's art being frequently commissioned for very specific purposes that have to do with acknowledging something about the family's past. Now you come to the U.S. where that's completely shed. No one comes across the water with those things anymore. Not to the, you know, no, not tons no, of it. Absolutely. And, and we'll, Unless you were very wealthy. Right. Yeah. And also breaking from Europe, this was a place where someone of low income means and education could actually, within a couple generations, become wealthy. Now they've done this, but they have no traditions. And they've got no sense now of the, the only thing they're missing. They have wealth, they have status, but they don't have heritage. And suddenly, World War II happens, which is a major acceleration of the bourgeoisie coming into their own. You know, people who would have, at their economic level of middle class, would have never had cars before, own their own houses, send their kids off to a university, any of those things. And those all become these markers of, I have arrived, I have arrived, I have arrived. And at some point, along with all those things, shows up art. And that conveyor belt of the, the order in which you do things has completely vanished, though. And I think that's what's shifted a lot in our business. The very thing that brought us in and gave galleries a space is a thing that's not so much around anymore. Well, yeah, I also think the art is got something to do with it. <laughs> I don't think a lot of it's very exciting these days in terms of what's coming out of here. Well, don't get me started on that. I yeah. think that's a whole nother thing. Well, and, and, yeah. and we go on for, for hours about that. So, no, I, I, I do agree. And I, I think one of the reasons it was so successful in the 80s and, and the 90s and the 70s to some degree uh, was because really that was when limited editions started coming into play. And people, we were a more educated society suddenly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The generation that had only really gone to high school was automatically going to college and had a sprinkling of art history. So we suddenly were being exposed. One of the requirements of art 101 was you had to visit a museum. You had to write a little paper, you know, you had to do all these things. So you had to think about it. And then suddenly you were seeing art that you'd studied in books or that you'd read about on a wall of a gallery that you were walking into. And suddenly it was, wait, there was a limited edition Warhol. There was a limited edition of, of, uh, of a Picasso. There was a limited edition of a Chagall. And, and if you realize it, you know, you could pay what you were, what you paid for, what you might pay now $50,000 for, for a Picasso etching. You were paying only $3,000 and $1,500 in 19, you know, as recently as 1981, uh, because that's when it was first starting to come over to this country. Mm-hmm. Picasso in particular, a lot of those editions and the limited editions, they weren't being sold in Europe. I mean, they were, but very little. This was the market that, you know, burst upon the scene with limited editions because the dealers were buying all their limited editions from the Europeans right, to resell them here. That art wasn't going through auction houses at that point. And in the 60s, when a little bit of that started with Picasso, you still could produce things. Not prints, though. Not, no? not okay. limited editions. No, 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 oh. no. Because first of all, Here, in this country I'm talking about. You you found them in Europe, absolutely. There was a war on. Again, I get back to the war. I mean, World War II, even though you you had editions of Picasso that were done pre-World War II, most of them were. Picasso didn't do any etchings again until the late 1960s. A lot of those editions weren't even released until after his death. Wow. I mean, some of them were, don't get me wrong, but the Villard stuff is all pre-World War II. Once the war came, you weren't, se- se- nobody was selling art. 
in France. <laughs> and then in the 60s, we still weren't, our way of thinking still hadn't focused on limited edition prints as a market. It was a, it was a collector's market. Prints weren't being framed and hung on the walls. They were being put into sleeves and you'd buy portfolios or you'd buy a single print so you could study it like you might uh, a stamp, you know, in a glassine envelope. I seem to even recall hearing in, by the 1960s, uh, even uh, Sears got into it. No, yeah. no, no, they did. Absolutely. Yeah. Sears is one of the first people to do it. No, that, that's the truth. To be given. Sears, and, I, think, I don't know if Montgomery Ward got into it, but Sears was known for that. And probably planted a seed by getting that notion into the minds of a lot of people long before they took their vacation to New York and stumbled into an art yeah. gallery for the first time. It would be something that maybe 10, 20 years previously they read about in the Sears yeah. catalog. Here we had the American yeah. Collectors Guild, which did a lot of Picasso prints. And uh-huh. a lot of, like, you know, uh, the, the record uh, company, you know, collectors. I remember the Columbia record. Yeah, yeah. sure. Right. You know, right. Every month right. you get a new, uh, get a new record. Yeah. You that know? also evolved into some pretty nasty stuff. By oh the yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But I, I'm saying is that that's what, that was the market. Right. Then in the seventies, that all changed. Yeah. All right. I'm going to let you go, but first, thank you so much. It's no, a, my pleasure. I really thank you. This was always this. fun. I could talk about this for days, obviously. There is something about talking to Tony. I always feel like I just took a ride in a, in a Mustang Fastback with Steve McQueen. I guess what I'm saying is he's a classic. And, and thanks a lot, Tony. That was a fantastic conversation. And I know everyone listening loved it just as much as I did. And don't forget, if you're looking for a great auctioneer or a fantastic appraiser who I've even used myself, go check him out over at Avante Fine Arts. That's A V A N. T-I-F-I-N-E-A-R-T-S dot com. Before we go, I want to send a little shout out to uh, some folks who were nice enough to write reviews for the podcast over at iTunes. It means a lot, and, and I hope you'll do it as well yourself if you're enjoying what you're hearing. The first is J.S. Murph, and I assume that's uh, that stands for Murphy. Uh, he's considering on going into the art business himself, and it says that He's learning a lot by listening to some of the seasoned pros that come on the show. And so uh, thank you, Jay. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you very much for writing that review. Next, Kim Ellery. Kim, I think I say, not only likes the show, but is a real fan. I've gotten to see Kim show up uh, just about every little outpost we have for the podcast, Facebook, Instagram. She even wrote me a lovely little email right in the beginning, letting me know how much she enjoys the show. And that that meant the world to me. If you like, please go check her out. Her artwork is lovely, and uh, it can be seen online at her website, kimelleryart.com. That's K-I-M-E-L-L-E-R-Y-A-R-T.com. And if you like what you're hearing on The Art Dealer's Show, I'd love to hear from you as well. So, until next time, my art dealer friends... May the elephants be big ones, and may the coconuts fall from the sky straight to your feet. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. Come and check us out online at artdealer.show. And of course, always can be found here at the old art dealer bar in the back corner booth.
Oh, really? Is it a five? As you find out, they sell things by the half cent. 